So happy first day of spring. And see the lovely spring decor. So regardless of exactly what happens outside, we've gone spring inside. And uh, I have to say, it was uh, quite an event for me this last week to get to be in one of the bigger snowstorms that uh, this area has seen uh, through the years. Gable and I were very pleased to be a part of that. We, uh, we made the call last week based on the early preliminary forecast to not have the in-person service. Uh, and then when the storm kind of got off to a slow start, you know, you always feel like when you're in that position and you got to make those calls, you think, ah, did we get it right? Maybe we overreacted. And it turns out we could have had the service. We would have gotten away with it. But you got to plan those things ahead in order to be ready for whatever happened. So, so it turns out it would have worked out. We could have been here. But it also turns out it was a real storm. And if the timing had been any different, we'd have been really sorry if we'd not made that choice. So I think we went the right way even though it didn't come about uh, until later that evening and into the evening. So I appreciate everybody that was a, a part of that decision and trying to figure out how to do that. And the thing is, we've gotten so used to not having live service anyway, it doesn't feel that weird anymore, as, as strange as it might have felt at another time. But uh, uh, thank you to everybody who uh, helped us make that choice and also... Uh, who was a part of putting, being able to put the service together uh, remotely again. So that was good. And I understand it's going to be a lovely, nice day today, about 60 degrees, maybe more, and then snow tomorrow. So I'm adapting to the dynamics of the weather here, a little different, uh, but, uh, but glorious and beautiful. And, and our fitness is good this week because we spent a lot of the week uh, working out in the driveway. So that was a good, a good experience for us. But uh, glad that spring is here. Hope you're doing well. Hope you're looking forward to whatever comes next, which I have no idea what that is, but you do. So uh, the next season looks to be exciting as well. So All right, let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray for your spirit today. Please be with us. Uh, as, as again we open your word and it maybe takes us somewhere we might not have expected to go. But help us today to hear your voice. That's what we want. We want to be able to discern your voice in our lives. Help us to that end today. In Jesus' name, amen. So we started this year in the book of John. And we're, just, we're focusing in the book of John for a season uh, and, and I'll be speaking today, I'll be here again next Sabbath, but then I will be gone the Sabbath after that. Uh, Pastor Jay will be here, he will speak that week, and then I will be back. I'm going to go and visit Alicia in Florida uh, at the end of this month and into the first part of April, and then I'll be back. And uh, it seems that we are making steady progress on the parsonage, and the, the latest is that by the end of April it should be done, so... So it could very well be that we'll get Alicia moved out here uh, maybe the beginning of May, and that will be great. So hoping that's what takes place. But anyway, we've been in the book of John, and, and I, I hope as you've seen, as we work our way through this, that, that there is what the Bible tells us, and then there are the reflections and the places we go after we've read those words, and, and the, 
the richness of the word and what it can do and where it can take us in our discussion is almost boundless because there is just this more and more as you reflect on that. And so we've spent all of these weeks to hear and we've only gotten through chapter 4. We're just now at chapter 5. And chapter 5 in the book of John is interesting because it's, it's as though it begins a new section of the story. A lot of the events that take place in 2 through 4 happen in, in, in kind of the, the same time frame. They're described as a few days later or after this or then, and, and it's kind of close. But then you get a gap as it were, before you get to chapter 5. Some of the things that have been going on in these first chapters is John has been exploring the challenge of recognizing the Messiah. So Jesus has come into the world. The Word made flesh. He came to His own, but the problem, His own did not receive Him. They did not recognize Him. But to all who did, he gave the right to be the sons and daughters of God. And then he tells some stories that illustrate that. We have the the story, he goes in and he clears the temple. And people are like, why can you do this? He says, destroy this temple, I'll build it again in three days. It, It blows their minds, they don't get it, they don't know what he's talking about. Nicodemus comes to him, he doesn't understand. He has the encounter with the woman of Samaria, and that's kind of the strange story there because it seems the Samaritans get it. We come to chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now this is, again, it's an aside, it's, it's context, but it is significant context for us to bear in mind, and that is the reality that there were the Jewish, the major Jewish festivals that happened. There was Passover, there was was Feast of Trumpets, there was Tabernacles, and you were supposed to go up to Jerusalem for various ones of these feasts, and Jesus is doing this. So that tells us a little bit about how he was functioning within the context of Judaism and the reality. And he's gone up for one of the festivals. It doesn't say which one. Verse 2, now there is in Jerusalem near the sheep gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Now, what I just read to you is from the New International Version. Now, the New International Version and a lot of of modern translations um, are drawn from research that has been done through the years on various manuscripts of the New Testament. Whether you you know this or not, there are a lot of different manuscripts that have made their way down through time from the originals to our day. Now, just so that you have a degree of confidence, they are, uh, to an extremely large extent, almost identical. 
So it's not like they're radically different. But these manuscripts do have one or two differences in there from time to time. Now, if you happen today to be holding a King James Bible, or possibly a New King James, because I think it may follow the tradition of the King James, the King James New Testament was translated from a Greek text called the Textus Receptus, in other words, meaning the received text. And it was a version of the New Testament that was widely available at the point when the King James was translated. And that particular version has a verse 4 in it. Now, if you have your Bible with you and you want to look at it, it's kind of interesting. You'll notice that John chapter 5 goes from verse 3 to verse 5 without a verse 4, doesn't it? Do you see that in your text? You might not have noticed that if you were reading over it. The reason for that is because the person who arbitrarily came along and divided the Bible into chapters and verses, you know that was an arbitrary thing that was done. The original writers did not write in chapters and verses. Someone later came along and divided it, and the text they used for the New Testament in doing that was this Textus Receptus. And there's a verse 4 in there. Well, why is there a verse 4 in some passages and not in another? All right, well, maybe you noticed as we were reading this, I got to verse 7, where Jesus goes to this pool, there's a whole bunch of sick people laying around, he sees one who's been there for a really long time, he says, do you want to get well? And the man says, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Now, if you're just reading that and you don't know the story already, that should bring a question to your mind. Why in the world is this guy trying to get into the water? And what's this business about the water being stirred? See, the reason people were gathered around this pool was they believed there were healing properties in the water. And the tradition said that when the waters are stirred, if you're the first one in, you get healed. Now, if you have the King James, and I'll read it. I have it in the margin here of my Bible. Verse 3, it says, Some manuscripts include here, wholly or in part, the man was paralyzed, and they waited for the moving of the waters. From time to time, an angel of the Lord would come down and stir up the waters. The first one into the pool, after each such disturbance, would be cured of whatever disease they had. Now, you will find that verse in the King James. You might find it in some others. But here's a problem. Does that sound like the way God does stuff? See, that's a little strange, isn't it? The tradition was they believed that when the water stirred, that was the angel of the Lord, and if I can just get in there before everybody else, then I'll be made well. Is that how God does things? Does that sound like the last shall be first and the first shall be last? Not everything we attribute to how God does things is how God does things, is it? Not everything we decide about how it works is how it works. There's been archaeology done in this area, and it's actually very fascinating. They've gone in there, and they've found the area of the Pool of Bethesda, and it's kind of a trapezoidal pool divided into two pieces with a walkway in between. 
And you'll notice the description in John says that there were five colonnades. In other words, covered walkways. So if you think about that, you've got four around the outside and one across the middle. So the description in John is, is archaeologically proven to be accurate. And these pools were fed by an underground aquifer, by water that flowed into them, but the flow of the water was intermittent. In other words, meaning occasionally the water flowed in there with pretty good energy. And when that happened, if you've ever been to a spring that's bubbling up, you see the top of the water is troubled. Well, apparently they had come to associate that with the presence of the Lord. And whatever healing properties there might have been in a spring, and sometimes you know there is healing properties with, uh, associated with springs and things like this. There was the whole fountain of youth thing uh, in Florida, at least the idea that it was there. The idea was if you could be the first one in, you'd be well. The problem is that's not how God works. And the earliest manuscripts don't even have that verse in them. What likely happened was over time, people read verse 7 and they said, why in the world would they go down in there? So presumably John in writing it assumed everybody knew why people came to the pool and what the notion was. But over time people said, what in the world does that mean? And somebody came along and wrote into it an explanation for why they were there and why the man gave the answer, when the water's troubled, I can't get in, someone else gets there first. So this happens from time to time. It's when a marginal comment finds its way into the text. And apparently this is what's taken place here. Now, it's no way to know for sure exactly. But as you read that story and as you understand the realities about God and Jesus and how he works, it does not make sense that God would set up a rule Every now and then, you're not going to know when, I'm going to stir the water, and whoever can knock everybody else down and get in there first gets healed. It's not how it works. But anyway, so that's context for the story. Jesus says to the man, do you want to get well? In fact, let's read verses 5 and 6 again. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there, he learned that he had been in this condition for a long time. He asked him, do you want to get well? That's the key question I want us to reflect on today. Do you want to get well? Now, let me give you context for that question. If you ask me, do you want to get well? I will be inclined to answer that question, yes. But what I might actually be saying to you is, I want to feel better, but I don't know that I want to do what it takes to be well. Let me give me an example of what I'm talking about. A little over a year ago, the 54 years of my life that I had lived had begun to take a toll. Maybe some of you have noticed this. I was not as strong as I used to be. I did not have the stamina I used to have. 
the mirror was not kind. I had back pain. I had a number of ailments that were compounding upon one another. And it was becoming clear to me that I needed to make a decision because I was going to continue to physically deteriorate. But the question was, do I really want to do what it takes to be well? So what happened to me was this. This guy sitting right down here in the front said to me, at the beginning of last year, we're going to join a gym. I said, we are? He said, yes. Because they have a special. If I get a membership, you get one free for a year. Well, I couldn't argue the price. So he basically took me by the neck and drug me to the gym. And he got a workout program, unfortunately a young man's workout program, and I have suffered bitterly. And set me on a workout regime starting a year ago. And I am much more well today because of that than I was back then. But let me tell you, what it's taken to be well has been painful. And if you've seen me occasionally, see, Sunday is leg day. Leg day is ridiculous. And very often on Tuesday and Wednesday, I walk around like this because I'm sore. But I'm also a lot stronger. And I'm a lot better skier than I was. Do you want to get well? Well, I want to feel better, but am I willing to do what it takes to be well? Do you see the difference? We'll come back to this in a minute. We always have an excuse. Verse 7. Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Now, this story gets kind of strange, but in a way that I think makes the point we want to make today. So let's finish the story. Verse 8. Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jewish leader said to the man that had been healed, it is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, who is the fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. So that's the story. Jesus heals him. He slips away. The man does what Jesus told him, gets in trouble because it's Sabbath, says, well, the guy that healed me told me to do this. Well, who is it? Well, I'm not sure. And then verse 14. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, see, you are well again. Now, here's the weirdness. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. That's a little unexpected, right? 
Now, one temptation in reading that would be for our minds to go to the notion that Jesus is saying, when you sin, God curses you with sickness. We don't like going that way, and I want to suggest to you that we don't have to go that way because later on we'll get to John chapter 9, which is one of my very favorite chapters in the whole Bible, which is the story of the man born blind. And the prelude to that story goes like this. The disciples asked Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? The assumption was his affliction was the result of his sin. And Jesus says, neither, but this happened that God's glory might be revealed in his life. So we can't draw the straight line here that says God puts curses on sinners as arbitrary punishment. Because that's inconsistent with verse 9. Yet how can we reconcile what is said here in verse 14? Well, I want to suggest to you that the explanation is both more simple and more profound than we care to believe. And it's directly linked to Jesus' question, do you want to be well? So let's step away from this for just a second and let me talk to you about what I think is one of the unhealthy fixations that takes place within the context of evangelical Christianity. And what that unhealthy reality is, and sometimes we are drawn into it as well, Protestantism is drawn towards this sometimes, is, is the notion that faith and instruction from God is all about whether I'm saved or lost. And we become fixated on this singular notion that the, really the only thing that matters in faith is saved and lost. Now, I'm not going to argue with you that that is an incredibly key point to the whole experience, but I do want to suggest to you that not everything that is counsel from God given to us will fit into the am I saved or am I lost discussion. That in fact, God has a lot more to say to us than just this whole saved, lost reality. And the problem is, you see, see, Jesus wants to work transformation in us. So yes, he wants to save us, but then he also wants to transform our lives. Now, where we get caught here is in the discussion of legalism. And, and there's really two traps here. There's two forms of legalism. There is active legalism and passive legalism. Active legalism goes like this. I've got to do all these things in order to be saved. And the active legalist destroys themselves trying to save themselves. But then there's passive legalism. Passive legalism goes like this. I don't have to do any of these things to be saved. Therefore, I won't. And the passive legalist destroys themselves with stupidity. Because they won't take any counsel from God because they don't have to to be saved. You see where it gets caught? If, if everything is based in this reality of saved, lost, 
What do I have to do to be saved? Well, you don't. You put your faith in Jesus. Oh, well, then there's nothing I have to do. You see how you get caught in that? So here's the question for you. What if the condition of our lives is actually largely a function of our decision-making? So I was 54 years old and out of shape. Is that God's fault? Or was that condition a reality of my decision-making? That's not a popular view in this day. When we try to make sure everything is something or someone else's fault. And we don't take responsibility for our decision-making. But what if law, the things that God has said to do and to avoid doing, what if law is not just arbitrary, but instead law is given to us as a grace because we don't know how to live? What if God has given us law, not as a means of salvation, but rather as a means of grace so that we don't do stupid things? So that we will understand right from wrong. So that we'll know what to do. What if it's not arbitrary, but instead it's God's grace to us to show us how to live and how to not be miserable? Let me give you an example. If I tell you not to jump from the roof of the church or else you'll get hurt, am I being arbitrary? It's just reality, right? Gravity's working today, so don't do that. If I notice my body getting older, and myself not having the strength I used to have, and my son tells me I need to exercise, is he being mean? Or is he just stating reality? If God gives us ten laws to follow in order to prosper, is he trying to force us into a life we would hate? Or is he in mercy showing us the only road to happiness? Psalm 1. I'm going to read you. A couple psalms here. Psalm chapter 1. If I ever find it. There we go. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. Now, I want you to notice, it doesn't say saved is the one, right? It says blessed is the one. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Not so the wicked, they are like chaff. The wind blows away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the, right, in the assembly of the righteous. 
For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. It's not a text about salvation. It's a text about what happens to you if you live according to the way the Lord has laid out versus what happens to you if you don't. Psalm 19. Psalm 19, beginning in verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. Does any of them say, the law saves you? No, it says the law helps you. The law teaches you. The law shows you how to live. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, the honey of the honeycomb. Now catch this verse 11. By them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. What is the value of the law? The law warns you what will hurt you and what will help you. By ignoring them, you hurt yourself. By keeping them, there is reward. Psalm 25. Psalm 25, verse 12. Who then are those who fear the Lord? He will instruct them in the ways they should choose. The Lord gives counsel. He helps his people. They will spend their days in prosperity and their descendants will inherit the land. The Lord confides in those who fear him. He makes his covenant known to them. My eyes are ever on the Lord for only he will release my feet from the snare. Grace sets you free. I mean, grace, grace saves you. But truth sets you free. Psalm 147. Psalm 147, verse 19. He has revealed his word to Jacob and his laws and decrees to Israel. He has done this for no other nation. They do not know his laws. So, I don't know what your experience was if you grew up in Adventist, you came to this later on, how it went, but you probably somewhere along the line um, encountered uh, the law and, and maybe you had hostility towards this somehow because of the way it came to you. What I want to suggest to you is God's law is not arbitrary to test you to see if you'll obey. What I want to say to you is the law that he has given us is one of the things that makes us a special people is because most of the world right now is living in abject confusion, no idea what's important, no idea what matters, no idea what's okay and what's not okay. And we are blessed to have been given by God a list of things 
to help us to not make dumb mistakes. Not to save us. Jesus died on the cross to save us. But to keep us from wasting our lives. One more text. Deuteronomy 29. Verse 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may follow all the words of this law. So I take you back to the question Jesus asked. Do you want to get well? To what extent is the endless round of suffering and failure that happens so often in our own lives or in the lives of the people we love actually a function of our decision making? Actually things that we can put an end to. So in this story in John chapter 5, Jesus heals the man and then he tells him, stop sinning, something worse will happen. Now I don't know what the connection between his condition and what Jesus said was, but apparently there was some. And that that man had it within his capacity and his decision making to keep from ending up back in that same spot again. Is that true for you? There was a tragedy this week. A tragedy that took place in the city of Atlanta. A man by the name of Robert Long. Now, I don't know, and I'm not taking a position on exactly what was his motivation and what wasn't. I don't know if he was a racist. I don't know if he was a misogynist. I don't know to what degree sex addiction. I don't have any idea. But for whatever reason, he took a gun and he went into massage parlors and killed eight people. And when I hear that story, I can't help but hear the echo of Jesus' words Stop sinning or something worse will happen. You see, if we continue living contrary to what God has told us, it drives us mad. Now, not everybody does that. But we can all get into those cycles. Cycles of adultery lead to broken homes. Cycles of anger and rage can lead to killing. Uh, cycles of covetousness can lead to stealing. Continuing in sin will lead to madness and it will destroy our lives and possibly the lives of others. I'm not telling you to keep the law so you can be saved. 
No, trust in Jesus and you can be saved. I'm telling you, honor God's law so you don't waste your life. So you don't ruin what God has given you. Don't do it for me. Do it for you. You see, what a blessing that God has told us. Do these things. I can tell you in my life, as I look back on it, I have never regretted following God's law long term. I have many times in the moment wanted not to, but I've never regretted getting it right. And I have never failed to regret getting it wrong. Because when I get it right, it builds my life, it builds my family, it builds my home, it builds the community. When I get it wrong, it tears it down. Jesus came to the man and said, do you want to get well? Not do you want to feel better. Do you want to get well? The price for that has been a year of exercise. But the reward? So worth it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, We want to feel better, at least. But help us to want to get well. And I pray you, I pray you would speak to each one of us right now, individually. At those points of weakness in our lives, where we leave the doors open in ways that don't build us up, they tear us down. Maybe we're not engaged in obvious active sinfulness. Maybe we are. But maybe we're not watching the way we should. Lord, I don't want us to turn into a bunch of insufferable legalists. But I also don't want us to suffer because we're just foolish. Help us to find the road that you've laid out for us. And if we're in an active, sinful cycle right now, Lord, help us to stop sinning so that nothing worse will happen. In Jesus' name, amen.